We're continuing to work our way through the first chapter of Genesis, which details the famous creation week, the six days over which God created everything, followed by a seventh day of rest. Last week, we looked at God creating light and took some time to delve into the central mystery of quantum mechanics with the two-slit experiment, and we were reminded by Job's encounter with God that we are not evaluating God's credibility as we read Genesis 1, but rather being given a privileged peek into the creative work of an all-powerful, supreme, limitless God. And this week, we're going to move through days two and three of creation. I hope that's okay. I know the pace is getting a little bit fast and out of hand, but we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the age of the universe as well. So let's dive into the text. Everyone should be able to find this quickly. Genesis chapter one, verse six. Just open the beginning of your Bibles. Genesis chapter one, verse six. It says, Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. The original Hebrew word that's being translated here as firmament just means expanse. And if verse 6 seems hard to follow, verse 7 does actually clear up what's taking place here. It says, thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So what seems to be taking place is that up to this point, God has created or recreated a, a solid earth, perhaps with a core, and then just water all around the earth all the way up to the edge of the atmosphere. And what God does here is split the water, sends some of it down to the earth and some of it up into the atmosphere, seemingly forming some sort of layer in the earth's atmosphere that is made of water. And what many scholars believe is being referred to here is what's known as the canopy theory. And the central idea of the canopy theory is that when God did this on day two, it would have created this belt of water in the earth's atmosphere that would have turned the earth into something like a giant greenhouse, creating a uniform climate across the globe. In other words, it would have been a tropical paradise everywhere on earth. And that's why in the fossil record, you find things like tropical vegetation showing up close to the North Pole and the South Pole. Those who hold to the canopy theory would say the reason is because this is what God did back in the day. There was a tropical climate everywhere. And this belt of water would have also filtered out things like harmful UV rays and created an oxygen-rich environment, sort of like a global hyperbaric chamber. And if you don't know what a hyperbaric chamber is, it's one of those coffin-like boxes that have a little glass window on them that athletes go in to recover. It's a hyper-oxygen-rich atmosphere in there, and it speeds up healing because it helps get uh, more oxygen into the blood flow in a good way. And so if people were living in this environment all the time, it could have potentially had a huge impact on how long people were living, how big animals grew, and all kinds of stuff like that. And what the canopy theory suggests is that when the global flood of Noah occurred, this atmospheric layer, this water belt in the atmosphere may have fallen to the earth and been the primary cause of all this extra water which flooded the earth during the flood of Noah. So without getting too much into detail on that, because we're going to be studying the flood of Noah in 
in a while. Uh, if the canopy theory is correct, the loss of this water belt, the world after the flood, the world when this layer was no longer there, would have been very, very different. It would have dramatically changed the Earth's environment, the climate all over the globe, and all sorts of things like that. The canopy theory presents some very compelling, and I, I personally believe very credible possibilities, but we do need to remember that they are speculative. Genesis 1 does, however, when you read it, seem to make clear that there was some sort of water canopy because we see God here separating the waters on earth from the waters up in the sky in the atmosphere. That seems to be what the text is saying. As to how it affected the earth, well, we're just making educated guesses on that. In verse eight we read, and God called the firmament heaven. Now just in case that confuses you, the Jews and the Bible refer to three different heavens, and I put this on your outline. The first heaven is the one we're talking about here. It's the air. It's the sky. It's what birds and planes fly through. Well, not at this time in history, but the atmosphere. That's the first heaven. The second heaven refers to space and the universe. When you look up into the heavens and you see stars and the moon and things like that. And the third heaven would be what we generally refer to as Christians when we talk about heaven. It's the throne of God. That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. If you've ever read that odd verse where he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. That's what he's talking about. The first layer of heaven is just the sky. Second layer is the universe and the stars that you see at night. The third heaven is the throne of God, heaven as we know it. So the heaven that's being referred to here in verse eight is just the first one. It's our atmosphere is what we're talking about. Then it says, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now if we had been reading through these first few verses of Genesis quickly, you would have picked up something strange here and you would have said, wait a minute, Jeff, why doesn't it say that God saw that it was good on the second day of creation? Every other day, if you read through the account, every other day of the six days of creation, it says God looked and he saw that it was good. So why in the world on the second day of creation does God not say it's good? The answer is very, very simple. The second day of creation was the first Monday in history. The first Monday in history, it's 100% true. And when we get to the next day, Tuesday, which we're about to read about, we'll find that there's a double blessing on Tuesday. God will say it was good twice. And this is why the traditional day for Jewish weddings is Tuesday. They consider it the day of double blessing. So, so what's really going on with the no blessing, double blessing on Tuesday thing? I have no idea. I have no idea, I looked high and low, nobody really knows what's going on with that. But it's pretty interesting, apparently even God doesn't like Mondays. Verse nine, then God said, let the waters under the heavens, so the waters that are on the surface of the earth, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So you almost have to imagine Jesus is like sculpting by the word of his mouth the earth at this time and he just decides, okay, now I'm gonna define the water into seas and oceans by causing land to appear on the earth and that's what's going on here. He's creating land. Verse 10, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. So he creates soil, he creates terrain and waterfalls and land features. He's terraforming, he's sculpting the initial landscape of the earth. He's creating all of it at this moment. 
Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed and the fruit tree, and then underline this here, that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, underline and it was so. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit. And then underline again, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So on the third day, we see life appear for the first time here. The first fruits literally of the earth appear on the third day. Now why might that be? Because Jesus Christ is the first fruits who rose from the dead on the what day? The third day, that's right. Now a good principle to be aware of when studying the Bible is that whenever the Bible repeats itself, whenever it seems to be unnecessarily redundant, it's generally the Holy Spirit's way of drawing our attention to something in the text that he doesn't want us to miss. And on this third day in both verse 11 and verse 12, the information appears that God made fruit trees with seeds in them that would produce more fruit trees of the same kind. This is the botanical version of the question which came first, that the chicken or the egg. This answers the question which came first, the seed or the fruit tree. And the Bible tells us it was the fruit tree. And verse 11 also tells us that it was so. So in other words, the appearance of these fruit trees happened immediately on the third day. How do we know this? Because when we reach the sixth day, Eden is already a garden. God doesn't put Adam on a giant earth of just dirt and tell him, hang in there, in a few months this place is gonna look beautiful. It's already a garden by the third day. So when he creates these trees, they are, boom, there immediately. And I believe this tells us two important things about creation. Firstly, God doesn't say, I created one tree, and then from that tree evolved an infinite number of variations resulting in the flora that we have today. He says in verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. Are you catching that? So in other words, the only thing that tree is going to produce from its seed is, is what? Another tree exactly like it, of the same kind. And of all the things that are left vague in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit chose to get specific about this. It wanted us to know for some very specific reason that the trees and the plants that were made produced only trees and plants exactly like themselves. They didn't lead to a whole bunch of other species and varieties of plants coming to life. So make a note of this. God created a variety of vegetation that did not evolve into something else. He created a variety of vegetation that did not evolve into something else. The text is being very, very clear about that, which is interesting to me. Secondly, in telling us that this happened instantly, and in telling us that he created trees with seeds already in them, God is telling us that he created, you could write this down, fully mature vegetation. He created fully mature vegetation. The classic point being that God created things like enormous trees and, and sequoias and things like that instantaneously. And if you had chopped down one of those trees, do you think there would have been rings inside it? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. The rings might indicate an age of hundreds and hundreds of years if it's a huge tree already, but yet that tree hadn't existed even the day before. And I think if you just look at what the text is saying, it's being very clear that he created fully mature vegetation. And the reason I point these two things out is to make us realize that when we're talking about a God who's infinitely powerful and can create from nothing, it is no problem for him to create fully mature things. That, that's not any kind of obstacle at all. It's no problem for him to create in a second a tree that would normally take 900 years to grow. It's not like God can create the universe from nothing but is now bound by the laws of time and just has to wait for that tree to grow. That doesn't make any kind of sense at all. Even if the speed of light was the same at the time of creation, it would be no problem for him to simply decree that the light of the cosmos be visible from the earth. That's no problem. He can just say, I'm gonna create these stars. Oh, and I want them visible from earth now. And it's done. It's just done because he's God. How would he do that? He'd just, just speak the word and the universe will bend to his will. It still will. If you believe that there's a creator God, then time's not a barrier for him. And that's one of the central truths that we should draw from Genesis 1. He can just do it. He can do it any way he wants. He can do anything he wants because he's God. That's part of what it means that he is God. You know, when we talk about creating, we always tend to think of creating from raw materials that already exist. So we talk about the creative process. We imagine things already existing like the canvas and the easel and the paintbrush and the paint. God is the only creator, the only artist who has ever created without any raw materials whatsoever. He created the very raw materials from which he created the entire universe. And I point that out just to remind us his, his level of power, creative power, is unparalleled and on a completely different level. There's nothing we can even compare it to. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly how the creation week happened. I'm just saying it could have happened that way with God creating a fully mature universe. And more importantly, there would be no problem with God doing it that way. No problem at all. Don't forget that the very first miracle Jesus performed was what? Turning water into wine. And it was good wine, which means the wine was what? New or aged? It was aged wine. He turned water not just into wine, into wine that tasted and functioned and in all ways was great vintage age to perfection wine. That's the first miracle Jesus did on earth, was bend the laws of time to create wine. And did you notice that just as God created light on day one, before he created the sun on day four, God also creates vegetation on day three before he creates the sun on day four? Now why does he do that? Because he wants to take away our ability to make the text say anything other than that this is a supernatural creator God creating the universe as he deems fit. He's making sure that we can't twist the text into something that it doesn't say. Because if you try to say something ridiculous, like well maybe each day is really an age or a million years or a billion years, really how, how long are plants gonna survive without photosynthesis? Not very long, not very long at all. 
Once the sun is created on day four, which we'll study next week, we'll have everything we need in place for the water cycle, evaporation, condensation, precipitation. You remember the old diagrams from school. And I can't pass up the opportunity just to point out to you, you can go look this up online, the oldest written historical references to the water cycle in any literature anywhere in the world are in the Bible by hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not even close. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon recorded that, I think I put it on your outlines. He said, the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. So Solomon observes, a couple of thousand years ago, more than that, that winds follow circuits and that even though the waters of the rivers go into the ocean, that same water finds its way back to where the river originates. Solomon also observed that if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And then Job the prophet wrote, for he, speaking of God, draws up evaporation, draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. That's pretty incredibly accurate. And Amos the prophet also wrote about water being drawn from the sea to be turned into rain by the water cycle when he recorded that he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. You see, the Bible is loaded with scientific insights that were recorded centuries, sometimes millennia, before contemporary science caught up. And while the Bible is not scientifically exhaustive, it doesn't cover everything, it is scientifically accurate. When it addresses scientific topics, the Bible is perfectly accurate. And so let's take a few minutes to really talk about the issue of the age of the earth. Over our first three weeks studying through Genesis 1, I've done my best to help us understand and recognize that there are some things that Genesis 1 is very clear about, and there are other things that we're left to speculate about. The logical conclusion being that God wants us to know and fully believe in the things that are made clear in Genesis 1, and he doesn't consider the other things to be as vital. And among the things that are made very clear in Genesis 1 are the truths that God is the creator of everything, He made everything in a specific order and he created it all in six literal days. And then as we read today, he created instantaneously. In other words, he created man and woman when he does that as man and woman. He doesn't say, let us make man and woman in our image and then create a single cell bacteria and and say, let's see where this goes. Let's see if this works out. He doesn't create a fish and say, there's us in our image. Eventually, you get the idea where this is going. Now, I'm not saying that the things that Genesis is clear about are are simple or that we understand how they work out fully. What I'm saying is that the text is extremely clear about these things. And there's no need to make the false claim that Genesis 1 is being ambiguous about things that it's being extremely clear about. The Bible records some very detailed genealogies and they're so detailed that we can actually track the genealogy back from Jesus all the way to the first man, Adam. And and not only that, but the Bible lists the ages of many of the men who appear in that genealogy, the age that they live to. 
And when you work through them all and you figure out a timeline, it becomes very clear that the Bible dates the appearance of Adam on the earth, the creation of Adam by God, to just a few thousand years BC. There's really no way around it due to those genealogies. It's almost as if they appear in the Bible for a very specific reason, not just that Jesus can be traced back to Adam, but so that there's, again, seemingly no way for us to fit 16 billion years in between Adam and Jesus. There's no way to do it if you believe the Bible. And you add to that, if you believe in a literal six-day creation, which we do, then you put yourself in the place of believing in what's called a young earth, an earth that is only a few thousand years old, usually around 6,000 years by estimates, as opposed to the billions of years that's espoused by mainstream science. And this is where Christians get very, very, very uncomfortable because they realize that many people who don't believe in Jesus think they're idiots for believing the earth is only 6,000 years old. And very simply, nobody likes to be thought of as an idiot. So, so what do we do with this stuff? Well, before we get into the science stuff, and we will get into some of that, I want to make two important points that matter far more than any of the details or any of the data. Firstly, if you're a believer, write this down. If you're a believer, non-believers finding your beliefs ridiculous is an inevitability. It's an inevitability. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, and I put it on your outlines, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the Bible even says, listen, the central message of Christianity, the best news in all of Christianity, the gospel that Jesus died and rose again so that you can live forever, have a relationship with God and have your sins forgiven, the best Christianity has to offer, those who don't love Jesus generally think it's foolishness. The Bible says that up front. So why in the world would we be surprised that they wouldn't consider the rest of what the Bible has to say credible. And if we're following a savior, really get this, if we're following a savior named Jesus who the world crucified, right? That's how much they liked him. They killed him. Why would we be surprised or even disturbed that they're not fans when we hold to a biblical worldview? To take it a step further, I've shared this before, if we're not even willing to suffer intellectual mockery or intellectual scorn for believing what the Bible says, we are fooling ourselves when we claim that we'd be willing to give our lives for Jesus. Can you imagine sitting down to talk with two Christians from the persecuted church and, and one of them shares, you know, uh, I'm from India, and because I'm a believer, I have been enslaved, and all I do is make mud bricks all day and get beaten every evening. And another says, you know, I'm in prison in China for preaching the gospel. Nobody knows where I am. My family doesn't hear from me. I haven't seen the sun in seven years. And you sit there and you go, you know, uh, I don't know why the Lord calls some of us to different lives and some of us to greater suffering than others, but I have to just be at rest with the fact that I've been called to suffer more than both of you in Canada where I am <sighs> I'm mocked for believing what the Bible says. And they're like, you mean like people hit you? No, 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 uh, with, with words. They hit me with words, very hurtful words. And sometimes I, 
I don't know if I should share this with you guys because the details are so graphic. I, uh, I sometimes don't get uh, invited out when they go like drinking after work. And um, yeah, it happens like a couple of times a year. And um, I think some of them don't even think I'm smart. And um, you guys just pray for me and thank God that you haven't been called to the level of martyrdom that I have in Canada. And yet we see a reaction from many Christians in the Western world that seems to indicate that's what they really believe because they're so desperate to find a way to not suffer any type of intellectual mockery or scorn. And they go, something must be horribly wrong. The world thinks we're stupid. People who don't believe in Jesus think we're fools. What's going wrong? And I want to say, have, have you read the Bible? Have you read like what happened to Jesus? Do you know how that story went? Like why, why are you acting like something is wrong or out of place because you're suffering a tiny bit of persecution for believing what God says in the Bible? What's wrong about that? That's sort of the way it's been for 2,000 years, 99% of the time. And so the first thing we need to remember is that if you're a believer, non-believers finding your beliefs ridiculous is an inevitability, an inevitability. And if nobody ever does, then your beliefs are probably a little bit off and you're not actually reading what the Bible says. Second important thing before we get to specifics, write this down, when we change what the Bible says to appease our culture, we surrender all claims to divine truth. So when we change what the Bible says to appease our culture and gain the approval of our culture, we surrender all claims that the Bible contains divine truth. As I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1's very clear about some things, and so when we take something the Bible is clear about and then obscure it by saying, well, it doesn't actually mean what it says, when what it says is very clear, we create a precedent that says, when you read something in the Bible that doesn't meet with the approval of the current culture, or even your approval, you can simply reinterpret it so that you can read it in a way that does meet with the culture's approval or with your approval. And when we set that precedent, the entire Bible now becomes open to individual interpretation. The idea of truth flies out the window because truth becomes relative. It becomes whatever each individual reader believes it should be. That's why when we read and study the Bible, we don't say, well, what does this mean to you? We ask the question, well, what does this mean? What did God mean when he wrote it? It doesn't really matter what I want it to mean. It matters what it actually means. If we allow everyone to simply interpret the Bible or change the Bible to suit their own opinions, then we have no right to claim that the Bible contains absolute truth. How can it if one person can read it and get something completely different to another person and simply reinterpret it to mean something else? That's not absolute truth. When we begin examining the issues of the age of the earth, our motivation cannot be, I've got to find a way to read this that will make my friends stop laughing at me and my beliefs. That can't be our goal in studying Genesis 1. And we can't make the approval of our culture the highest goal. The truth has to be our highest goal. I shared last week that, that science is only just now coming around to the stunning 
realization that the speed of light is not a universal constant. It's slowing down across the universe, which means that in the past it was moving faster. And I shared how the math, which is over 99% accurate on this cosecond uh, curve that mathematicians have figured out, points to light moving an incredible 10 million times faster before 3000 BC, which means two things. It means that the light of stars and planets that are billions of light years away today would not have needed billions of years to reach the earth when light was moving 10 million times faster. Another reality is that we know that the speed of light changes when it goes through steam, when it goes through glass, when it goes through water, and so we know that the speed of light is affected by things like gravity, and so we actually have no idea how fast the speed of light is operating at different places in the galaxy. We have no idea at all. The only thing we figured out is that it's slowing down across the universe, and it's different in different places across the universe. Time itself is a physical property that is related, among other things, to the velocity of light. When something that was previously thought to be a universal constant is found to not be a constant, but to be slowing down, it throws all kinds of things up for reevaluation, including the nature and functionality of time itself. Because in math, when you're doing complex equations, you need to find constants because what they serve as is they serve as an anchor in the equation, a fixed point that isn't going to change. It's what holds the whole equation together. So when something that you're using as a constant is found to not actually be a constant, then the whole equation is thrown off and nobody really knows what that means with some of these complex equations related to thermodynamics and physics across the universe. The reality is that time itself may have functioned very differently as little as a few thousand years ago. How so? No idea. And that's exactly the point. I can't call the days of creation 24-hour days because I don't actually know that they were 24 hours long. I'm not saying they're billions of years long. I'm just saying we really can't say based on what we know as fact that they were 24-hour days. Do I think the universe is billions of years old? No, I, I don't. When you consider how little we actually know and, and all the possibilities included within all that we don't know, is it possible that the genealogies of the Bible, a literal six-day creation, and a universe that seems to be billions of years old are all possible at the same time? Absolutely. Absolutely. In more ways than one, because we know so little about all of this. The big point is this, that we should hold tightly and believe in the things that are made clear in Genesis 1. And with regard to the things that are not made clear in Genesis 1, we should be humble and we should understand that we don't understand everything. Now that being said, there are some very compelling scientific evidences for a young earth. And I'm gonna share just a few of them with you and hopefully stop before it gets boring is the goal. So I've already shared about the likelihood of the speed of light being 10 million times faster before 3000 BC, which would explain the visibility today of stars and planets that are billions of light years away. Outside of that, as I said, we know that time functions differently in different places in the universe, and so we know that the speed of light functions differently, and so this whole idea of the stars being visible being a great evidence for the age of the universe is completely out the window. It's just no longer an evidence for the universe being billions of years old. One of the most compelling evidences for a young earth is the problem of how quickly biological material decays. Let me explain. 
The world's leading DNA experts tell us that DNA cannot exist in any natural environment for more than 10,000 years. In other words, even in things like fossil or amber where it's preserved for a moment, it still cannot survive, DNA cannot survive longer than 10,000 years, which is becoming a really big problem because intact strands of DNA have been recovered from fossils allegedly millions of years old. Neanderthal bones, insects in amber, and, and even from dinosaur fossils. Bacteria that's meant to be 250 million years old has been revived with no DNA damage. This is the craziest one. I don't know if you guys have, have tracked any of this over the past couple of years, but there's been actually a couple of dinosaur fossils from which they've been able to recover soft tissue and blood cells, astounding experts. And, and the reason it's so astonishing is because none of that is supposed to be able to survive more than 10,000 years. So what does science do? Well, obviously they go, it, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Science chooses to believe in miracles in situations like that. Radiometric dating, you know all the dating you hear about um, using radioactive isotopes to date rocks and things like that. The way it works is it requires a correctly calibrated clock and this is the crux of the whole problem with radiometric dating. So how do they correctly calibrate the clock that they use to do radiometric dating? Well, they base it entirely on their assumptions. So what they do is they say, well, we know, you know that the Jurassic period happened this many years ago. We know that this rock appeared around the Jurassic period, which we know is millions of years old. So if we're aiming this instrument at this rock, we'll know it's correctly calibrated when it says 30 million years. Okay, 30 million years. Now we'll take it and we'll put it on another rock. Oh. 30 million years, see, the machine tells you. It's just science, you can't argue with it. That's really how it works, even though it's as ridiculous as me aiming that same instrument at you and dialing it in to give a reading of 30 million years, then going to another person getting a reading of 30 million years and being like, see, science, machinery, it makes it clear, you're 30 million years old. That's what they're doing. They're beginning with the assumption and then calibrating the instruments based on that assumption and then claiming that the instrument, instruments are providing empirical evidence for dating. If the instruments and clocks are not correctly calibrated, it doesn't work at all and they're not correctly calibrated. So why would I assume that the fossil record dating is incorrect? Why would I assume that? Well, certain rock crystals, which are small crystal structures found inside rocks, contain very, very, very small amounts of radioactive minerals. And like all radioactive minerals, they decay over time. And as these radioactive minerals decay, they leave teeny tiny rings of color around themselves, which are known as radio halos. And what scientists can do is they can analyze a rock and look at these rock crystals under a microscope and look at these radio halos and like reading rings on a tree, sort of, they, they can tell from the size and pattern of the radio halo roughly how long ago this radioactive mineral died and they can date the rock that way. The problem is that geology turns up some findings that are really, really problematic for the fossil record like uh, radio halos from polonium-210, which were found in the Colorado Plateau, that indicate that Jurassic, Triassic, and Eocene rock layers were formed within months of each other, 
when according to the fossil record, they're meant to have formed hundreds of millions of years apart. And yet the empirical radioactive evidence comes up that doesn't agree with this conventional timescale. Now the reason you don't hear a lot about this stuff is because when modern science seems to disprove the Bible, it's shouted from the rooftops. It's on the front page of papers and websites. It's put in textbooks. But when those same findings run into enormous problems, those problems and findings are generally swept under the rug. And I'll give you one more example real quick. Uh, there's not enough mud on the seafloor. You see, each year water and wind erode about 20 billion tons of dirt and rock from the continents and deposit it into the ocean. And the material accumulates as loose sediment on top of the hard lava layer, which is the ocean floor. And the average depth of all the sediment, the mud on the bottom of the ocean, is, is less than 400 meters. The main way known to remove that sediment is by tectonic subduction. What it is is the tectonic plates of the earth shift ever so slightly underneath the continents and when they do, they shove a little bit of the sediment from the ocean floor under the continents, literally sweeping it under the rug of the continent, I guess. That's the main way it happens. And according to mainstream scientific literature, that process only removes about a billion tons per year. So as far as everyone knows, the other 19 million tons that sort of erodes into the oceans every year just accumulates on the sea floor. At that rate, erosion would deposit the amount of mud that's currently on the sea floor in less than 12 million years. But according to evolutionary theory, erosion and plate subduction have been going on ever since the oceans existed, which is an alleged three billion years. And if that were really true, the oceans would be completely choked by sediment and mud dozens of kilometers deep. An alternative explanation, a biblical explanation that works far better is that erosion from the waters of the flood, after the flood of Noah, all that water going back into the ocean caused a massive amount of erosion that deposited the current amount of sediment into the oceans about 5,000 years ago. That fits far better and it explains everything very, very accurately. And I could share many, many more examples of scientific evidences for a young earth and universe, but, but that's not the goal. I put a link on your outlines where you can go and dig into that more if you want to. The goal is just to let you know that there is significant scientific evidence for a young universe and there's some very significant real problems with dating the earth to be billions of years old. There's some real problems with that. Remember the bottom line, hold tightly and believe in the things in the Bible that are made clear in Genesis 1 and with regard to the things that aren't made clear in Genesis 1, be humble and open-minded. And just to remind us again, what's the single biggest reason we believe the earth was created in six literal days? Why do we think God's being literal and not using some sort of rhetorical language? Because God himself said so. I put it on your outlines in Exodus 20:11. God is laying out the 10 commandments to Moses and he says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, for this reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God said, this is how I arranged the first week that the universe existed 
and I want you to follow the same pattern for your week. In other words, God wanted us to clearly read and understand Genesis 1 as speaking of literal days and then apply that same pattern to the literal days of our week, six days and a day of rest. And here's the thing, God wrote that in stone with his own finger. So as far as verification goes, it doesn't get much better than that. I don't know what else you can ask for. The finger of God writing it in stone. Okay, I see your point. So how do you handle it when someone asks you, because you're probably like me, you dread the question, oh, so do you believe the earth is only 6,000 years old? I've had that before as the very first question to telling someone I'm a Christian. It's like, really? Is the first question? I would suggest you start by answering honestly and saying yes, because I believe that Jesus put his stamp of approval on the book of Genesis as being literal and true. And I believe what Jesus says because I believe that Jesus is God. And because he's God, he knows what's true because he was there when it happened. And then they'll say, well, well, you're assuming that Jesus is God. Yes, I am. And that's the only issue. You see, you can engage people scientifically and intellectually, but the real issue always comes down to Jesus. You gotta take him back to Jesus, to his death and resurrection, which prove he was and is God. And so the issue is who is Jesus? You see, Jesus didn't point to Genesis as the defining evidence for Christianity. He pointed to his resurrection from the dead as the defining evidence that he's God. And then when the skeptic says, well, you know, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, then you got him. And you begin to talk about the proofs and evidence that we worked our way through when we talked about that, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That's the real issue. Write this down. It is infinitely more important that believers be informed apologists for the resurrection than for Genesis 1. That doesn't mean you're apologizing. It means you're an advocate. It's infinitely more important that believers be informed apologists for the resurrection than for Genesis 1. So don't go, don't go watch videos on YouTube. Don't go read a book about creationism if you can't share evidence for the resurrection yet. Far more important that you be able to walk through why they should believe that Jesus rose from the dead than that you defend creationism. Much, much, much more important. There's not a whole lot of people out there who converted to Christianity because of creationism. Not a whole lot. When the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they're being led by Moses, they've been complaining about only getting to eat manna, this bread-like substance. They'd turn it into bread. And, and so God says, fine, Moses, I get it. They're complaining. Tell them that I'm going to give them meat. In fact, I'm going to give them more meat than they can eat. And Moses responds and he says, God, how is this even possible? We're in the middle of the desert. There's 600,000 men here right now. There uh, are women, there are children on top of that. There's a couple of million of them. And Moses is saying, what are you going to do? You're going to take all the fish out of the ocean? Or are you just going to kill every single animal that we have with us? How are you going to provide meat every day for two million people? And I love God's answer because he's indignant. He's insulted by Moses' question. And so God sarcastically replies to Moses and says, oh, has the Lord's arm been shortened? In other words, what's the problem, Moses? You think I'm God, but this might be just a little bit too difficult for me. My arm's not, not quite 
not quite long enough to get the food to you. And so what God is saying, he's saying, Moses, what part of the word God do you not understand? I'm God. And in Jeremiah 32, God says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything, anything too hard for me? When Jesus had just finished explaining to his disciples how hard it would be for a man to earn his way into heaven, they asked him, well, then who can be saved? And we're told, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. When we read through Genesis 1, remember who God is. Remember who God is. He's God. But also as you pray and you seek the Lord for help in your own life, as you seek him for strength, as you seek him for wisdom, for guidance, for healing, for deliverance, for a miracle, remember who God is. Remember who he is. Do not reduce his greatness. Do not reduce the miracles that he's already performed just so that they can seem more palatable to people who don't even believe in God. You want to be people of faith. We want to be men and women who believe what God says. And how are we going to do that if our starting point of reading the Bible is reducing one of the greatest miracles that God has ever done? Creating everything out of nothing. But if we can begin with that, then I think we're starting with an appropriately sized God in our view of who he is. He's a God that can do anything. He's not limited in any way. Nothing's impossible for him. Absolutely nothing. And so as we prepare to worship and pray and and take communion together, would you meditate on those three verses that we just read? Would you allow your problems and your challenges to take their proper place, which is bowing before the greatness of God. And and would you take some time to stop proclaiming how big your problems and challenges are and instead proclaim how great your God is and how big your God is and how powerful and how strong your God is. And you'll find that as you do that, the things which seem so daunting and, and overwhelming, they begin to take their appropriate place bowing down before the greatness of God. So let's focus in on the greatness of God as we worship. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what you've shown us in your word, for what you've made clear, uh, for the glory and power and creativity that you have revealed to us, for what you do want us to know. Uh, Father, we believe it and we receive it in Jesus' name and we trust your word and we believe that it's true. And we believe that you are the same God today. As the word says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're just as powerful now as you were when you were speaking the universe into existence. And Lord, we know with just a word from your mouth, the impossible can be accomplished. In us, through us, in our lives, and in the lives of those we love and are praying for. And so, God, I I pray that we would have a proper and right perspective of you, a proper and right perspective of your greatness, that we would worship and honor you appropriately, not just as we sing, but, but in our lives, moment to moment, day by day. Jesus, I pray for a fresh revelation of your greatness for all of us this evening, especially for anyone who is 
feeling overwhelmed by any circumstance, would you overwhelm them with your greatness this evening, Lord God, and put everything back in its proper place, you on the throne and everything else bowed before you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.